We're going to hear God's words again now. And we've got three readings this morning, two very brief ones, beginning with Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. And if you go to the church Bible, it's on page 1015, 1015, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34 to begin with. So let us hear the very word of God. And it's got a head in here. Jesus predicts his death a third time. This is the word of the Lord. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. While those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them, what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And then Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. Verses 42 to 45. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, And bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes 
in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. Praise God for his word, and may he bless the reading and the preaching of his word. turn back in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. That would be great too if you can follow me. The scripture, I've got headings on the slide, scriptures will be in the Bibles in front of you, so have a Bible in front of you, it'll be much easier to follow. As we come to God's word, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we We've been reminded by Dab already, we come to a passage where the crowd saw you, but they didn't really see who you were or what you'd come to do. Lord Jesus, would you show yourself to us this morning? Would every man, woman, boy and girl here see who you are? Show yourself in your glory to us, that we might believe in you, that we might love you, we might see you in your wonder. Speak to us, we pray, as your word is opened, that we might all be changed. We ask this in your precious name knowing the Father will receive our prayers because we pray them in Jesus' name, through the gate that we've read of this morning, the way in. Lord Jesus, receive our prayers because we come through your blood in your name. Amen. Amen. Open with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 11. Mark's gospel, Mark's biography of Jesus is reaching a climax. Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem in his earthly ministry for the very last time. In just four days, from what we've read in Mark 11, just four days, he's going to be betrayed by his friends, and particularly by Judas, abandoned by the lot of them, and arrested. In just five days, in just five days, the crowds are going to turn on him. The crowds we've been reading off this morning, just five days, they're not shouting Hosanna, they're going to shout crucify, and Jesus is going to die on a Roman cross, condemned to death by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. But in just seven days, this is Sunday, a week's time, on Easter Sunday, the tomb is going to be empty. This is a big climax. Mark is is kind of racing to the climax of his gospel. Today, we have Jesus riding into Jerusalem that last time as the king. As the king was promised, the Messiah, the Christ that was promised. And the crowds on this day, they can't get enough of him, can they? throwing their cloaks on the road, throwing their cloaks on donkeys, putting Jesus on, waving palm branches, laying palm branches in the road, shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David. They can't get enough of him. They've recognized rightly that Jesus is the promised king, the saviour that God said for all those hundreds and thousands of years that would be sent. Jesus is the son of David. But King David lived about a thousand years before Jesus. Sometimes we can forget that, not five minutes, but about a thousand years before David was born. And he was the second king of Israel. He was the first and the only, well, the greatest, the greatest kings they had, who was a man after God's own heart, who saved them from their enemies, who delivered them from all those around them who wanted to destroy them, but also was a man who led them 
in the worship of the Lord. He gave us many of the Psalms in the Bible and so on. Great King David. And the people are calling for the son of David. They see Jesus as the son of David, the king from David's family, the king descended from David who was promised, who would save them again like David had saved those thousand years before, just as God promised would happen. And they think, therefore, as Dav's already reminded us, Jesus has come to save them, most of them, from all the sorts of things David saved people from, the enemies around them, the Roman Empire in this case. It wasn't the Roman Empire in David's day. It didn't exist. It was the Philistines. It was other groups. But David mightily delivered them from Moab and the Philistines and others. Well, they think God's man's going to come and save us from Rome. That's what salvation means. But Jesus, as we very quickly see and as the the book unfolds, is not that kind of saviour. He's not actually what many of them are looking for because he's come to die. We had some of the readings, some of the times where Jesus says he's come to die. There have been four or five points through the gospel already where Jesus has taken, taken them aside and said, I've come to die. I've come to be crucified. I've come to take the penalty for your sin. I've come not to serve, sorry, not to be served, but to serve and give my life on the cross as a ransom for many. That's Jesus. But these crowds, they're, they're not seeing it. The question for them, that Mark really is posing as he gives this account, and the question for us today is what kind of saviour do you want? Is your life a mess? Do you know, maybe even if this life's not a mess, do you know what your relationship with God is? Is that a mess? How are things going for you? What does eternity mean for you? What kind of saviour do you need? What kind of saviour do you want? That's the question this passage raises. These crowds wanted the wrong kind of saviour, so ultimately they didn't want Jesus, which is why we've been singing of them turning on him in literally five days. Can you believe it? Five days from this passage, they've all turned on him pretty much to a man. Even the disciples have legged it. They've abandoned him. So we're going to work through this under three headings. The first is probably the biggest, and it's this. Jesus is the unexpected king. He's not the king the crowds went out to meet on that road. Look in your Bibles from verse 1, if you will, with me. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, so they're going to come from the Mount of Olives, Jesus is going to be riding down through the Mount of Olives and up the other side of the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem through one of those magnificent gates and through into the temple. It's a great scene if you've ever been. On my honeymoon, I got to stand up on there. Julie and I looked in to where Jesus would have come. And it's, 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 it's a spectacular sight. Anyway, that's where Jesus is. He's approaching Jerusalem. He's coming to the Mount of Olives, to Bethany and Bethpage. And he sends two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt, which means a young male donkey, not yet fully grown male donkey, tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back shortly. It appears Jesus has made some kind of arrangement to borrow this donkey. Jesus certainly was very, very well known. This is where Lazarus was raised from the dead and where Jesus spent much of his time and his base when he was in Jerusalem was Bethany. So Jesus is very well known. We don't know. Mark deliberately and the the writers don't tell us. Jesus has presumably made some kind of arrangement to borrow this donkey. 
Anyway, they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. In other words, just like Jesus said. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Mark records a few unexpected details in here. I don't know whether you noticed. First of all, this is a colt and not a horse. Probably spotted that. It's a colt and not a horse. Why do I say that? Well, if you're coming to lead a rebellion, if you're coming to lead an army, if you're on the attack in the ancient world, there were no tanks and helicopters in those days, you went on a horse. You didn't go on a baby donkey. (laughs) That was a sign of peace, not war. You didn't go to war on a colt. You went to war on a war horse. And we'll see more of that. Scripture speaks of that itself, even of the Lord Jesus. You can't kick out the Romans on a colt, a little baby, untrained donkey. No one's even ridden this donkey. You, know, you can imagine Jesus coming in and the Romans being really scared, not, as he rides in on a colt. It's not the symbol of war. It's the symbol of, of gentleness and peace. Rulers rode on donkeys when there was peace, when people loved them, but not for war. Jesus isn't coming on a war beast, which is probably what the people wanted. He's not coming to start an uprising. He's coming to die, as we've been reminded. Hold that thought. The second thing about that cult is it's never been ridden. Again, quite a few folks reading around this point out that in those days, when one king took over the kingdom from another, it was really common to take the previous king's animal and ride on it. And even in the Bible this happens. When Solomon, when David wants Solomon to follow him as king, back in, you read this in, in, in the letters, in books of Samuel and Chronicles, when David wants Samuel, sorry, Saul, getting completely mixed up, when David wants his son Solomon to follow him as king, he says, put Solomon on my mule and ride him in front of the people. Solomon rode on David's mule to show that he was taking over. He had the authority of his father. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes on a donkey. We don't even know whose it was. And it's never even been ridden on. He's not fulfilling those kind of expectations that that, that people might might have thought of. And third, it's borrowed. And he's going to give it back. He's the king of the universe. He's coming to take his throne. And he's worried about giving the donkey back. Those details... Jesus has got to give it back. It's meant to be a little bit surprising. It's meant to make you think, and it made the apostles think, both John, writing his gospel, and Matthew, writing his gospel, both take us back to Zechariah, who picks up on all those details. Zechariah. If you want to turn to it, Zechariah chapter 9, or I'll just read it to you. Zechariah chapter 9 is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus when he comes to die. And it speaks of this. And these details, Jesus is showing clearly that he's the king, Zechariah prophet. Zechariah, back in the Old Testament, it's a few hundred years before Jesus, well after David, but well before Jesus, a few hundred years back, Zechariah saw this. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, that's the name for Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious. Yeah, he's going he's gonna to rock. Righteous and victorious. But then it goes on. Lowly and riding on a donkey. Lowly and riding on a donkey. 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Even Zachariah thinks it's a little bit ridiculous. The Messiah would come on a baby donkey. What kind of military leader is that? Not coming on a horse. In case we don't get it, Zachariah spells out he's not a horse in the next verses. Jesus isn't coming on a horse because, verse 10 of that prophecy, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. Israel won't have horses and chariots to fight wars. The war horses from Jerusalem I will take away. The battle bow will be broken. He, speaking of Jesus, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. He'll rule the world, but not by military. Do you see that? And from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Zechariah prophesied that Jesus would not fight with horses and chariots. In fact, that he'd abolish horses and chariots in the end. And yet his kingdom would go out to the ends of the earth. He's a different kind of king. That's why we have all this strange business with the baby donkey, borrowed, anonymous. Zechariah continues, how then will Jesus win if he's not going to fight? Zechariah says, straight after saying Jesus isn't going to fight, he's going to take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. Zechariah says, as for you, speaking to God's people, those who would trust in him, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. The rescue, the deliverance of the prisoners, the captives, those in bondage to sin, as we've been thinking, their rescue comes not from the horses, but from the blood of the covenant. Jesus sets his people, he comes to set his people free by sacrifice, by the blood of the covenant. Covenant just really means a promise, a solemn promise. God's promise of salvation to his people rests on the blood of Jesus, the sacrificial death on the cross of the Lord Jesus. That's how this king is going to win. See how he's different to the king they were expecting? This is our Jesus coming humbly on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus came to set his people free from something much worse than the Roman Empire, didn't he? He came to set us free from something far worse than, in fact, any material problem we can be facing. He comes to set us free from something more, more important, more, more serious even than sickness or bereavement or even death itself. It's the heart of all of that's wrong. Jesus comes to set us free from, from sin. What is sin? Dab's already told us once Jesus came to set us free from sin, and, and that's right. But what is sin? The English word helps. It's not really a technical definition, but the English word is a little word with three letters. With what in the middle, Tilly? What's in the middle? I. It's not literally what the word, the Hebrew or the the Greek words mean. I think it's brilliant. It's a little word with I in the middle. It just helps us to remember. It's about me, isn't it? I didn't mean to pick on you, Tilly. Just thought you'd answer. So, uh, yes. It's not just about Tilly. It's about the I in all of us. I. Sin is turning our backs on God because I want to run my life my way. So I don't want God anywhere near it. I certainly don't want him telling me what to do. I don't want to know him if, if, if he's going to interfere. Sin is rejecting God, the one who loves us, the one who made us to enjoy him forever. And yet, we don't want him. Because I want to be in charge. I want to do it my way. Frank Sinatra's very silly song that's very popular. I did it my way. People play at funerals. What are they going to say to God when they get there? Oh, I did it my way. Brilliant. Great. 
What about my way? He'll say, I loved you. I made you. I made you to enjoy me. But to live my way. Sin is rejecting God. Sin is having rejected God and turned in on ourselves. Being selfish. Self-absorbed. Only caring about maybe what I want or how I feel or what I want people to think about me or how I want people to perceive me or look at me or treat me or whatever. It's about me. Me, me, me. I. That's what happens when our relationship with God is broken. That's the sort of outworking of sin. I'm summarizing an awful lot of Bible teaching, but I think it's important just to have in mind what's, what's going on. Martin Luther, who began the Reformation in the 16th century, had a lovely expression. Well, it was a blatted expression, I won't give you, but um, it means he saw sin as human beings curved in on themselves. See that illustration? Rather than reaching out for God, rather than reaching out for one another, we become curved in, like a plant that's closed up. That's what sin does. We become curved in. That was the idea of sin that fired the Reformation. Because they wanted to be saved from that. Martin Luther's Roman Catholicism wasn't, wasn't delivering him from that. He knew he needed Jesus. Sin is idolatry, loving myself, loving stuff, loving other things in God's place. Instead of loving God and loving those whom God has made and who God loves, the people. Sin is much worse than just breaking rules. Sin does include breaking rules, but it's much worse than just breaking the rules. It's it's rejection of the God who gives the rules. It's rejection of relationship. It's rejection of everything we were made for. That's what sin is. It's a heart disease that we all have. A fatal disease, a heart disease. And it has two consequences. Two consequences of sin. One is legal. One is practical. What's the legal consequence of sin? Is that we're guilty. We're condemned. We've rejected God and he is just... And there was a punishment for sin. The penalty is death because we've committed treason against the God of the universe. Treason. We're rebels. The penalty is death. Hell. Separation. But there's also a practical consequence. And that's we become enslaved to sin. As we turn away from God, as we become closed in on ourselves, we become slaves of the desires of our own hearts. We chase those things that we think will make us happy, but never do. We become slaves. We become given over to those things. And the good news is that Jesus comes to save us from both the penalty. He takes the punishment on that cross. He came to die so that God's wrath could fall on him instead of us. And that's good news. That's amazing news. And he did it to deal with the, the uh, power of sin too. So the penalty of sin, deals, Jesus deals on the cross. And having dealt with the penalty, he deals with the power of sin. He comes to be with us, to dwell in us, to give us new hearts, to change our hearts, if you like, to make us new, to give us a love for him. First of all, he takes the guilt away, he cleans us up, and then he comes and he changes us. One he does straight away, when we believe in him, we're forgiven. The penalty is, is dealt with on, from the cross. He takes that penalty when we believe in him. We're, we're justified in the power of sin. Jesus then comes to us to change us and work in us that the penalty for sin and the power of sin might be done away with. That's what Jesus has come to do. That's what the cross is about. 
So what about all those prophecies that say Jesus will be a great king like David, defeating our enemies? Well, in a sense, and in a big sense, he is defeating our enemies. Death, hell, sin. Jesus defeats the the biggest enemies we have. But Jesus is coming back, and he will finish the job. All that's been prophesied about the victories of God's Messiah will come true. Jesus will rule the world. He's going to make everything new. He's going to do away with everything that opposes him. It is coming. Jesus will one day destroy God's enemies. But praise him, he hasn't done it yet. There is one Messiah with two comings, if you like, two comings from heaven to earth. Wants to deal with the power and the penalty of sin and wants to put an end to sin finally and bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Wants to die. Wants coming in glory to make everything perfect, and to do away with everything and everyone that opposes him. But isn't it a good job? Jesus came twice. Isn't it a good job? Don't we praise him that he came to die, that he gave himself up so we could be forgiven, so that when he comes the second time, we're not destroyed? We'd be stuffed, wouldn't we? If Jesus simply came as the judge, if Jesus did what these crowds were looking for, if he just came as the king and set up his kingdom, he'd send them all away. They'd be destroyed. No, Jesus was coming to die so that he could come back as the son of David, the conquering king, the victorious one who who does away with his enemies. Jesus is coming back. One Messiah, two comings. And really interesting, I didn't spot this until I was studying for, for this passage. Both of those comings are pictured with a different animal. Jesus comes the first time on a colt, a baby donkey. A bit pathetic, humble. What does he come on the second time? Stays with me. What does he come with the second time? If you've got a Bible in front of you, flick onto, keep a finger in Matthew, in Mark, flick onto Romans 19, where we do see Jesus coming, not on a donkey, but on a war horse. This only happens, friends, this only happens because Jesus has first come on the donkey to die, to make a way of salvation. But this is what is coming. One Messiah, two coming. This is the second coming, not on a donkey, but on a horse. Revelation 19, verse 11. John sees this. and It's, it's an apocalyptic vision. It's not literally what's going to happen. It's a vision using concepts we can understand, showing the seriousness of the end of the world, that Jesus is coming to reign. It's a vision, but the vision is, is really striking, graphic, almost horrific. Revelation 19, verse 11 says this. John sees this vision of the future. I saw heaven standing open. This is the end of the world. And there before me was a a little donkey? No. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. It's the same rider as before, isn't it? It's the same rider who was on the donkey. He's now on a white horse, a beast. (laughs) Same rider, same Jesus, one Messiah, two comings. Look at this. Whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. This is the king of kings. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. That's from the first time when he came on the donkey. He was crucified for us, and his robe is dipped in blood. The Jesus who came on the donkey, who died, is coming on the war horse. I love this image. And his name is the word of God and the name for Jesus. The armies of heaven, this is us people if we're his, by this point, were with him. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, 
white and clean. Jesus' robes are covered in blood that we can be clean. This is our Lord Jesus. He's coming back. He came once to to save, and he's coming with his people as the conquering king. And I say that because the next verse is, is actually, it's pretty horrific. But remember, Jesus doesn't want this for anyone. Jesus has died that we all might be forgiven, that we all might have robes that are clean because his robes are dipped in blood. Look what Jesus says, verse 15 of Revelation 19. Coming out of his mouth at the second coming is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And then the quote, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus comes twice on two animals, a donkey, humbly offering you salvation, going to the cross, and he's coming again on a white horse. That's the point of this passage. That's the point. That's what Zechariah, that's what John wants us to see. So don't wait. Ask him now to forgive you because he came as that humble king, because he died on the cross for you. Don't wait. Ask him to give you new birth. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to deal with the penalty of sin. You deserve to die, yet Jesus has taken your penalty. Ask him to deal with the power do it today. My second heading. Jesus, the rejected king. Back in Mark chapter 11, if you will. Mark 11 and verse 8. Jesus, Jesus is continuing. Mark continues to write. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They have slightly missed the whole donkey's cult business. They just think David is arriving to set up his kingdom. And so within five days, the same crowds are calling for him to be crucified. Basically, as soon as Jesus gets himself arrested, a couple of pages on in our Gospels, Five days on, as soon as he gets himself arrested and they realize he isn't going to boot out the Romans, they turn against him. And we can see it here. There's no, there's no concept of the Zachariah humble servant king coming. They just want a military leader. And all of the other gospel writers say the same thing. John describes it almost in the same language. They took palm branches, John 12, 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They want a national king. Matthew 21, verse 9, the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, the one who will sit on David's throne. He's going to save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Luke captures it, Luke 19, 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They've even added the king into that. They want a king to come and save them from the Romans. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They all want the second coming. They all want God to sort out the mess. They have no category for a Messiah who dies. And so, let's just see where this goes. Flick on a couple of pages to Mark 15. If you've got Mark's Gospel open, Mark 15. This is where they turn on Jesus. And they turn on him precisely because 
is not the kind of king they want. And you see the seeds of it in Mark 11. Mark captures in Mark 15 the point they turn on him. So Jesus has been arrested, betrayed and arrested, and he's coming before the governor, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who has the power of life and death over him. Now, it was the custom at the festival, Passover, remember Jesus died at the Jewish feast of Passover, it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested, something Pilate liked to do to make himself chummy with the people, to to keep them in, keep the peace in, in, in the area. It was the custom to release a prisoner. Now, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who committed murder in the uprising, a proper hero. Someone fighting against the Romans. Do you see that? Note that about Barabbas. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. That is to free their hero. Do you want me to release you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. Release Barabbas. A murderer. What shall I do with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate, knowing it was none. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Why do they want Barabbas? Because he's the hero they thought Jesus was going to be. Do you see that? What's Barabbas doing? He's uprising against Rome. He's fighting. He's committing. He's murdering Roman soldiers. He's a rebel. They want him, not Jesus. That's the saviour they want. Jesus is the rejected one. So while it looks good in Mark 11, all those cloaks spread on the road, all the palm branches and all that, it's actually a horrible misunderstanding Jesus isn't the king, the saviour they want at all. Really, they want Barabbas, not Jesus. Jesus was the saviour they needed, but he wasn't the saviour they wanted. Do you see that? He was the saviour they needed, but he wasn't the saviour they wanted. What about you? What about me? What kind of saviour do you want? When you look at your life, you look into your heart, look into the future, what are your hopes and dreams? What what kind of saviour? Do you want what would make the difference to your life and your eternity? I've used this illustration before, but I think it helps. If you have a water leak at home, you don't call for an ambulance. If someone's having a heart attack at home, you don't call for a plumber. You know, you call for the right rescuer, the right deliverer, depending on what you need saving from. If, well, what about Jesus? If what I want deep down is health, wealth, and prosperity and security, which is basically what the Jews, the crowds basically wanted, then a crucified Jesus is going to be useless to you. If what I want is just to be happy in this life, secure enough, have enough money, maybe have some kids, maybe nice, well-behaved kids if I have them, you know, whatever, those things, a crucified Jesus doesn't offer you very much. In fact, it's irrelevant. But if what we want deep down, deep down, is to be free from sin, to be free from the selfishness, the power sin has over us, a new heart to love God and love one another, be the people we were created to be, to know God's forgiveness, to know God's acceptance, to be part of a family, to have somewhere we belong because Jesus has adopted us and his people are our people, to have eternal life 
to be with Jesus and the armies of heaven when he comes back to earth than a crucified Jesus who came to save us from our sins is exactly what we need. That's the best news ever, isn't it? It just depends what you want saving from. The crowds rejected Jesus because he didn't meet their needs for a saviour. What about us? What about you and Jesus? Thirdly and finally, the last verse, Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus did not arrive. Let's think about what he didn't do. He didn't arrive and go into the governor's palace or the king's palace. Neither did he arrive and start organizing a rebellion like the people wanted. No, Jesus arrived and went into the temple, to the place of worship, and he examined it very carefully. He checked it all out, and he was seen to check it all out. What was going on? How were the people worshipping? What was God's house like? And we know, don't we, from reading on in Mark and all the Gospels, the next day Jesus goes and has to clean it out because he does not like what he finds there. He doesn't come to kick out the Romans, He comes into God's house. He comes among God's people. He comes to the temple, to the place of worship. And he deals with the sin among God's own people. And we'll find out about that next time. That's Jesus. You see, Jesus' priorities are different. Verse 11, Jesus is not just the rejected king. He's the inconvenient king, if you like. He comes and starts sticking his nose in. It certainly is his business. But he comes and he looks at how people are worshipping in the temple. And he doesn't like what he sees. Because what he sees is people exploiting the poor. What he sees is greed, immorality, godlessness. He sees people buying and selling for a profit, getting in the way of, of worship. He sees all kinds of stuff going on. And he won't have it. Jesus has come to, de- to free his people from sin. He's come to deal with sin. He comes into the temple. He doesn't go into the palace. He doesn't come in with an army and kick the Romans out. He comes into the temple and starts kicking out the sin. He's dealing with the sin among his own people. Yet another reason they didn't want him. That's our Lord Jesus. That's our Lord Jesus. See, you can't have Jesus as king without having him come and cleanse the temple. Paul can describe each one of our hearts as temples of the Spirit, temples where Jesus needs to reign, places of worship. You can't have Jesus as king without having him cleanse the temple, without having him change you without having it impact your life, what you think is important. That's why becoming a Christian starts both with faith, believing in Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David, the one who came to save on the cross and who rose again, believing him, and repentance, turning away from sin. Because Jesus has come to cleanse his temples. In conclusion then, the crowds thought they knew Jesus, but they did not. They thought they knew why he'd come, but they did not. And in the end, they rejected Jesus because he wasn't the saviour they were looking for. He was actually irrelevant for what they wanted. Can I plead with everyone here this morning? Everyone. Come and meet Jesus. Meet him through his word. Get to know the real Jesus. 
that we might know who he really is, why he came, how wonderful he is, how gracious he is, how incredible it is to know him, to live for him, to have him with us in our lives. Come meet Jesus through his word, the Bible. If you've never done it, I say this whether you're a Christian or not, because many Christians have never done this. Take one of the Gospels and read it through. Maybe even read it through in one go. You can read Mark in like an hour if you're an average reader. Or a couple of hours if you're a slow reader. One or two of the other Gospels take a little bit longer than that, a few hours. But you can read the Gospels through quite quickly and just be amazed at the person of Jesus, who he is and why he came. You can also read it slower and meditate on it. We need to do both. We need to get to know Jesus through his word. But read. But when you read... I don't, I don't know how you come to the word. When you read, do you actually, are you doing it in the hope of meeting the real Jesus, that we might really come to him, to know him, who he is, why he came? Do you ask him? You can pray when you come to the word. I try and do that. I don't always do this. We need to do this. Lord Jesus, meet me in your word. Lord Jesus, I want to know who you really are. I want to meet you. I don't just want to know about you. I want to know you. Lord Jesus, meet me in your word. Walk off the pages and into my life that I might put my whole trust in you, that I might live for you, that it would be worth it because I love you, because I know you, not just about you. That's what the Bible can do. The Bible is an incredible book. Anyone who's ever really tried that has found it to be true. Jesus meets us in his word, that we might put our faith in him. We put our whole trust in him for now and for eternity, for everything, to be saved from everything that matters, to be with him forever. When you meet Jesus in his word, put your faith in him, live for him, turn to him. And do it now. Do it now while Jesus is still the king who comes on a donkey. He's not yet the king coming on the clouds of heaven on the white horse with a sword from his mouth to strike down the nations. But he is coming. He shed his blood for us. He's done it all for us. He's the king who came gently and humbly on a donkey. He's the king who suffered Roman crucifixion. He's the king for whom, on whom the Father poured out all his wrath on sin. Come to Jesus now while he's the king who comes on a donkey's colt. Don't wait till he comes on the white horse with the armies of heaven because it will be too Late. I'm going to close with those words from Revelation 19 again. Revelation 19, verse 11, as we close. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords.